Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Bustin' Beaks and Chasing Tales. In this episode, I'm joined by Jacob Russell, a fine turkey hunter who's going to give us a rundown on some of his experiences and run through some questions with me. And he's also going to give us some food plotting tips, as that's what he does for a living. Hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to the Bustin' Beaks and Chasin' Tales podcast. Join us for turkey and deer hunting tips, information, and stories. And now your host, Todd Hogan. Hey, with me on the line tonight is Jacob Russell with The Break TV. How you doing, Jake? I'm good, bud. How you doing? Doing all right. Two reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast. One, because you're a phenomenal turkey hunter. And two, because you've got a knowledge of food plots uh, really better than anybody else. I know you're kind of, you and one of my other friends are my go-to guys to ask questions about it. So uh, I'm going to kind of run through some turkey questions for you at the start. And then um, you and I have kind of talked about some um, food plot questions that we're going to kind of go over so you can give guys kind of a some knowledge on, on how to get those going. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you've got a, so we both live in Missouri. You live in Southeast Missouri. I'm kind of in Central East Missouri. Um, you're, you're down in farmland and uh, you actually work in the uh, agricultural industry, right? Yeah. We, uh, work for agricultural, uh, we do custom applicating fertilizer, spraying seed sales, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, we, we kill plants and grow plants for a living. Okay. All right. Nice. <laughs> and you've got a you've got a degree from Southeast Missouri in that, right? Yeah, I got a bachelor's in agribusiness. I graduated back in uh, 08. Okay. All right. Well, you've got more knowledge on this than me. Like I said, I hit you up for stuff a lot. And uh, so anyway, let's um let's start with turkey. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know we were talking earlier. You had a run in in uh, Missouri where you were what six years in a row where you doubled up on birds yeah i had a pretty good streak there for a while and uh you know i i our farm is about an hour west of where i live i i'm just here south of cape Girardeau, and uh we hunt bullinger county a family farm it's uh 243 acres and it's uh about 95 percent woods so it it's hard to pattern birds I use a lot. I run trail cameras basically all year, you know, from watching antlers growing in the summer and then I'll run them till shed season. And then, you know, right now I'm getting ready for the, getting ready for the youth hunt. So I still got, I moved all my cameras around and set them up on where my plots, you know, typically have my birds. And, you know, I, I run recon off of that because if you, if you can't see the birds from, you know, miles out, like some of these flatland guys that, you know, I, I have, uh, the way I walk in along this, uh, our main logging road, you know, there's food plots kind of either on the road or just right off of them. And I can, I can walk in and check a card and see that a bird was there at eight o'clock in the morning, you know, the day before, and there's a bird at the other plot at nine. So I kind of get an idea of how they're traveling and what time they're going to be there. So, if uh if I'm doing some running and gunning and I know that nine o'clock a bird's gonna be in this plot, I can make a move and try to get there before he does and 
been pretty successful doing it that way, but uh, it, it's tough. You know, wood birds are it's a it's a different story. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you. You know, most of the time when I'm hunting birds around here, we're set up on the edges of fields. Well, if you don't have a whole lot of you know uh, yeah. field edges, or or you know, like I said, you said the, the majority of your farm is woodland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just try to pattern with the trail cameras and go from there. Yeah, our uh, the biggest field that I have is that's roughly six acres and it historically you think that the birds would want to be out in a bigger field you know strut zone where you get you know where they can be seen they they won't necessarily go to that field till later in the season i uh i killed my second bird last year out of that field and there was almost zero gobbling on that end of the farm like all year and then the very last well the last weekend is when our it it was like opening day again. They were all around that field, and it, it there's not a lot of big timber around it. A lot of the bigger timbers on the western end of the farm is where I typically hunt, and it's a lot of logging road, ridge tops. You know, I've got food plots on these ridge tops that they will basically just get in the middle of the logging road, and it's the same thing. You know, they can see 100 and, 150 yards, give or take, one direction, so they'll just kind of get in this little junction and there's three roads that come in that's where this that's where my food plot is where i kill all my turkeys and it's like a just a natural strut zone for them and that it's been successful for me i killed a lot of birds on that one spot and they really they just get on that road and it's kind of what they do is just it's a same thing you know getting out in the field and where they can be seen and they can do it from the logging road too but <laughs> I know um, next weekend is youth season in Missouri. Yep. You're taking somebody out? Yeah, we uh taking a buddy of mine's daughter. We had a benefit for a, a friend of mine had a pretty bad sickness. We threw, I, uh, auctioned off a, a youth hunt, and a buddy of mine bought it for his daughter. So we, I went out today and pulled cards. I took my kids out. We rode on the ranger and looked at the food plots, checked the cameras, and then I talked to him yesterday and he got his little girl out and patterned her shotgun. And we were texting pictures back and forth and, uh, she's had a few birds on her belt. I think she's 11, 11 or 12. And, uh, you know, I think she's pretty pumped about going it. So we're going to, me and Izzy and Mitch, we're going to try to set up and see if we can't maybe get one on film or, you know, we're going to have a good time regardless sounds cool um have you been out have you heard any gobbling yet i have not been out yet uh my buddy's got ground right there's one piece of property in between us and he was out i believe uh friday morning it was windy and he, he didn't hear anything but uh i've talked to some local guys around here that they said they've been getting it pretty good but i have yet to be in the woods and listen for them we've been in between rain showers trying to get some stuff done around around the shop but oh yeah they're definitely strutting been wet. yeah i brian told me brian johnson told me the other day that friday morning he drove by a field and there were five of them strutting oh yeah yeah we we were running, oh. some, running fertilizer down south the other day and there was a uh, my buddy sent me a video of some birds out in the field and it's getting there let me um i've got a few questions here that i was asking brian the other day let me run through some of these and see what yep. kind of where you stand on them um you set up in the dark or do you wait till light i uh i set up in the dark 
uh, I don't, I'm kind of superstitious. I don't like to leave my blind out, you know, over a course of a few days. Uh, I, with prior experience, you know, I've had, I've had days where I've set a, a ground blind up out in the middle of the field and turkeys will just, they don't care. They'll just walk right up to it. So, uh, typically what I do is we have our, uh, me and my dad and maybe another guy or two, we'll head out to the cabin on the Friday after work and I'll, I'll go up and do, you know, pull some cards, get some more, you know, most recent information and I'll, I'll go ahead and set my blind up and, uh, that way it's ready for opening morning. But if I get to hunt, you know, maybe Monday, Tuesday, I like to take my blind down just for, I'd, one, I don't like getting faded out or anything, but it's just, I, it's just a preference for me. And, uh, I know where the birds typically go and it's just kind of, I can get there in the dark and just wait for them. Yeah. Makes sense. It, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, nah, in every scenario is different out there. You know, I've had days where you get up at, uh, you know, you get in the blind at, 45 minutes before daylight trying to get a camera set up and you know you want to just let everything kind of calm down but then there's other days where you know i don't necessarily get bird activity in a certain area you know we have a two acre field that birds you know like to do it in the afternoons you know, mm -hmm. if i decide i want to sleep in or have something going on i can try to get down there mid-morning and just wait it out till you know that early afternoon take you know it it Scenario wise, it just I just kind of go what the birds are doing. I've never do I've, you. I'm sorry. Uh, let me ask you this real quick. Do you typically chase them around, or do you sit still knowing that they're probably going to be by there? I I used to. Uh, my dad's. We're kind of complete opposites now. You know, he's that old school. He likes to run and gun, and he wants to chase them. But I've I've looked at it over the last few years of getting more into trail cameras and, you know, more food plots. And I use my, I let the, uh, my trail cameras do all the work because I know if they're going to be in this plot at a certain time, it's just a matter of waiting. And yeah, with here in Southeast Missouri, there's not a lot of leaves on the trees when it comes around to, you know, there it's still, there's a few trees starting to bloom, but as for leaf wise, you can see so far through the woods and you know if you're trying to in my opinion if you're trying to sneak up on a bird in the roost and he can see you from 300 yards through the woods you know you'll bump that bird before you even get close to him and that's yeah. and you know later in the year when the birds get a little tougher you know if they're a little bit more vocal or something then yeah i can do it with a little bit leaf cover but i typically like to sit in a blind just for I, if I know a bird's going to be there at nine o'clock and he's gobbling 200 yards away, if I know he's going to be there, I, I don't want to go and try to bump him off the roost whenever it's just a, I can wait another hour and get him before I try to spook him off the roost. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, when, when do you make your first call? Uh, I locate I mean, calls. You I, you know, if a bird's gobbling and he's hot, I don't really, I just let him do his thing. And if he's on the roost, I'll give him a few light clucks, putts, you know, whatever, just enough to know that I'm there. And mm -hmm. 
I don't try to get too aggressive early. And then if once he hits the ground and he starts to – if he's coming my way, I just pretty much shut up because he, know, he knows I'm there and I'll just let him do his thing. And if he kind of hangs up, then it's – I do really soft calls. And okay. Just enough to make him – like I'm still there, but I'm not coming to you. You're going to have to come up here. Yeah, you don't want him to. I guess you don't make enough calls that you want him to hang up. He wants yeah. you want him to come looking. I want him to stay curious and come looking. I don't want him just to, you know, I, aggressive calling is there's a time and place for it. And last year was a prime example. I uh, it was a it was the very last day of season, and I, I'd actually missed a bird the day before in this, in our big field. Uh, Bird started gobbling at like eleven thirty, and he, I, I thought he was going to walk right up my gun barrel, but he he skirted me through the woods. I was facing the edge of the field, and he kind of come around the edge of it. And uh, as I made my move, he seen me, and I shot. I thought I knocked him down, but I looked out twenty yards off my gun barrel. I shot a tree in half, so, <laughs> so I had. I had to carry that back with me to the cabin. But the next morning, I got up there, and I, I was five minutes late. And these, these two birds were across the field with uh, 180 yards, and they were hot. They were gobbling at every – they were double gobbling, triple gobbling. Anything that made a sound, they were gobbling at, and I – I, there was nothing I could do. I had to sit. I, I couldn't belly crawl out and set a decoy out, so I just kind of hung back out in the woods. I was oh seven eight yards off the field edge, and uh, I had a hen fly out of the tree thirty yards to my left, where I had sat up the previous morning. She flies out in the middle of the field, and these two longbeards just pitched out, and they were wing to wing, fan to fan, with four other hens, and they were. I could just see them over the crest of the hill. They were 180, 200 yards. And I was just thinking to myself, like, I, there's nothing I can do. I have no decoy. I don't how, – how am I going to fight off four live hens? So, I just – well, what do I have to lose? It's the last day of season. So, I just started getting crazy. I was scratching leaves and super aggressive calling. What I was trying to do was just make that dominant hen mad. Yeah. So, whatever, whatever she would do. I would do that and some, and I finally got her to break off with the other, the other three hens in tow and those gobblers followed him all the way up and they I shot him at like 43 yards, I believe. But I was making so much noise that it just, it sounded like a little party up there where I was at. I was scratching leaves. I was in a little bowl, like almost where like a, a old stump hole was. Mm -hmm. So I, I was kind of down on the ground a little bit, and man, I was just kicking leaves and thrashing and just, having a heck of a time and it worked it was one of those that typically don't happen like that but i'm glad it did what's well, new uh something i haven't heard much of if you can't get the, the gobbler to come to you try to bring the hen that him that he's chasing to you i i call you know i when you're sitting there and you haven't heard a bird gobble in a while and you have a lone hen or something come through and i'll just try to whatever she does i'll do it with her and i've had I've had pretty good conversations with some hens in the past getting clucking and just going to town and you're like, well, if I can get her to do it, surely, you know, if there's a bird within earshot, maybe he'll gobble or, 
you know, come in silent, but striking up a conversation with a hen is, it's a, I, I use it a lot. I try to anyways. Makes sense. I, I get that. Um, let's see. Um, how far a shot is too far a shot for you? Uh, you know, I like to, I like to keep it reasonable, you know, 40 yards, you know, with it, I shoot at Indian Creek and it is, it's pretty, it's a damn good choke. Yeah. And, you know, I know that my gun, my load, my choke, you know, 50 yards, I shoot and pattern it that far. I don't necessarily like to do it, but if I had to, I will. But I, you know, I think a good 40 yard with, you know, modern, modern shells and chokes nowadays, you know, you hear guys shooting 50, 60 yards that, if you know that your gun's capable of that and you're comfortable with it, you know, that's more power to you. But my, my opinion for me personally is 40, 45 yards is I don't really like to go out unless I have to. That's, that's about the max. I, I know I think I could, I've, I think I could probably, if I had to, I think I could probably pull a 60, but that would be, that would be extreme. I know yeah. I've, I've shot my gun and tried to pattern it that far out and, I'm still getting a pretty good pattern. I shoot one of those Indian Creek choke tubes just like you do, and uh, uh, they're excellent. But, you know, you get that far out, you're, you get a lot of, you got a lot of things that could go wrong there. Yeah, and if you, I don't use optics. You know, guys with a red dot or a shotgun scope, you know, if you can pattern the gun with that, I mean, that's it's a good way to do it. But, you know, I just got the old front back bead, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of variables that can come into play on that. Oh yeah, you could take out a small sapling. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> nice two-year-old maple. <laughs> nice. Uh, let's see what uh, what do you do? What do you do when the hen or when? Let's see. What do you do if a turkey if a gobbler comes off the roost with a hen? Well, uh, just I mean, really, nothing you can do unless you can get him to break off. Uh, you know, it's a waiting game at that point. You know, I've had a. A lot of times where I, if I got lucky one day, a uh, bird gobbled in the dark. I was actually, me and my wife were hunting and uh, we were walking back to the blind and he gobbled pretty much in the dark. And I was like, oh, he messed up. Well, I told her to go back. I said, you know where the blind's at? Just keep on down the road. Just, I'll be, I'll go up there. I'll be back here in a little bit. And I walked up this logger in the dark and I got it between a, tree full of hens and the gobbler was on the other side of the ridge and i got i got right in the middle of them just so happened i got i don't know how i did it walked right within probably 50 yards of these birds and didn't know they were there and they started clucking and putting and having a good old time right at daylight and everything they were doing he was answering and he pitched out and flew right up to my gun barrel and i was like well you can't get that lucky every you know <laughs> they don't happen very often but they did all the work for me but you know typically at our place you know, these birds, they're hinned up right now. I had some pictures today of one gobbler with, uh, I think it was nine or 10 hens. So there, there's really nothing you can do except wait them out. But when these hens, you know, from personal experience, when these hens go to nest, you know, midday that bird's gobbling hard on the roost. And as soon as he hits the ground, he shuts up. I know he's got hens with him. And, I don't like to do a whole lot of calling because, A, I don't want to educate him if he is, you know, if he has been shot at, you know, neighbors had him or, you know, just 
educating a bird. Once those hens leave him, those uh, typically at our place, you know, nine, ten o'clock, those birds that never gobble on the roost will get fired up because now they're looking because they the hens have left him. Now he's he's searching, and that's when I'll start getting a little bit more aggressive. And you know, I've killed a lot of birds after ten o'clock just for that reason. Mm. You know, you get lucky, but you know, we have. Cause you can see like lone hens will come through at eight o'clock by themselves, And it's like, well, they're going to nest. And then it seems like an hour or two later is when these birds will start firing up. Cause when the hens leave him, then he's got to go out and look for something else. So as the season plays on, do you like to hunt the early morning or do you like to wait till that mid morning when you know they're going to look? I sit daylight to one. Okay. You know? Yeah. It, well, yeah, that's that's kind of what I know. I was talking to Brian Johnson a couple of weeks ago, and he's the same way. He'll sit all morning, but uh, he says he ten, typically has more success around that eleven o'clock mark. Yeah, I think uh, the first bird I killed last year, I think he was like eleven forty-five, almost noon. I had a, uh, I had some, I had a hen come out in the food plot, and I was just bored. You know, I haven't heard hardly seen you know, anything for the last couple hours. And I just started, I got my slate call out and started talking and chatting with her and she started clucking and uh, started yelping real loud. And lo and behold, bird gobbled and he was within 200 yards. And I just kept, kept on her and she would just cluck and putt and have a good old time. And she actually called that bird up for me. And, you know, I would have never known he was there because I wasn't calling. I hadn't heard, haven't heard a gobble and, a few hours because last year i think it was uh i think i heard 13 or 14 different birds opening morning and i think three or four might have been on us you know that was just with earshot i'm up on a high ridge and pretty mountainous country and you know you can hear those birds are probably good three quarter mile away but still counts because you can hear it Mm -hmm. but uh it was almost dead. Like the that following week, my dad he didn't hear a gobble the next morning, and they didn't do like almost zero gobbling the the next two weeks. And then that last week it seemed like they just fired up and it was like opening morning again. Okay, um, if you could take just one call with you, pot call, mouth call, box call, what are you taking? Uh, man. Trusty slate's hard to beat. Yeah. But Wendy can do it. it I do a lot of mouth natural calling. Uh, I've never learned how to use a diaphragm because I can't figure out how to not make it tickle my tongue. But I learned just, <laughs> just years ago, just started kind of purring and clucking and yelping with my mouth. And I got, uh, I've killed some birds with it, so I guess it works. But uh, windy conditions you know, a good box call, loud, high pitch, you can cut through the wind, but you know, me with the slate, I think it's a lot more versatile. You can, you can get loud and high pitch with it if you need to, but you can also do that really soft clucks and purrs that, you know, for that, that final, that final approach, you know, you can get real quiet and not, you know, not necessarily get so loud a calling where it's, you know, throws him off, but you can, you can really dial it down and seal the deal with it. Yeah, so I'd say a slate call be my, or a, I have a glass call, but that'd be my go-to. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, how do you know when to make a move on a bird, I mean, or when to just hold tight? 
And I know uh, each bird's is, each bird's his own, got his own mind. So, but I mean, yeah. when do you decide? You know what? It's time to go. Uh, it, if a bird, if I have a bird that, you know, hangs up at, you know, hundred yards, and I know he's there, I can hear him drumming. And if he decides to, you know, they'll get on that ridge, and if he wants to move and go down, say two hundred yards or so, and you know, get down there and start gobbling. Then he works his way back. You just kind of keep, keep middle notes on. All right. He's now he's back at a hundred yards. Now he's back at 200. Once he gets to that furthest point, get back, to, you know, try to get as close to where he was just at and let him work his way back to you. You know, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily work. I've had a, I think I've done that one time that bird was back and forth, back and forth and wouldn't come. He was just, he just hung up. So I just, you don't call to him, and once he makes his move and goes away from you, do the best you can to get where he was just at. So when he does make his move to come back, you know, hopefully you can cut that distance and he, he'll walk back to you. Okay, makes sense. In a perfect world, that's how it works, but it don't always happen that way. <laughs> if it was only that easy, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, there's <laughs> nothing to it. A um, couple more, and we'll – call this quits and we'll move on to food plotting but um what do you do on a highly pressured bird or highly pressured uh farm or late in the season which what's your best strategy on birds that have probably been shot at or educated or they've known something's up for the last two weeks there's a lot more hunters in the woods i uh i try to go quiet you know i don't do a whole lot of calling you know if, if a bird's not vocal and if he's already gun shy or call shy whatever it, there's it's almost impossible because i've said it for years i mean if a deer could smell like a turkey or if a turkey could smell like a deer you never kill one it, you know it's just that they're smart enough to where they know it's just like a big buck if they're if they're gobbling and every time they get start gobbling they get shot at they're going to shut up so if a bird's highly pressured and he ain't talking it's just a matter of getting to a spot where, you know, once again, the trail cameras come in. If he's been in this plot and he's like basically uncallable, just sit him out and wait. Cause if you can't call him, he ain't going to come to you. He'll most likely go the opposite direction. It's just sit tight, sit quiet, and then hope to God he walks out. Cause you know, if you make a move on a bird, that's not gobbling, he'll be spooked and you'll never even know he was, he was ever there. Yeah. Okay. So I like to sit. I like to sit up and you know sit them out and wait. Yep. Okay. Um, last question: <clears throat> If you could give one piece of advice to a new hunter, new turkey hunter, what would it be? Don't give up. Okay. If if you've gone out and you know practice your calls and you know you you get on a bird and you know you mess up or he called and you spooked that bird, don't get discouraged because it happens to everybody. I told my nephew this uh, a couple years ago. He missed a bird and uh, he got dejected. He was just moving his head, hanging his head around. And, you know, it was like, hey, don't worry about it. You know, like, you know, of course he did shoot three times at it. You know, I kind of had, <laughs> had to bug him a little bit. But <clears throat> I told him, I said, hey, you're not the first person. You're not the last person to miss a turkey. I said, it'd, it'd be all right. And he yeah, not three times. Like you, I said I missed last year. <laughs> you know, so it happens to everybody. Everybody misses, but don't give up. Stick with it. You know, 
calling and all that stuff, it'll come with practice. You know, with practice. The more you do it, the better you get. And you know, learn from your mistakes. You know, if you if you made a a cluck or a putt when he should have yelped, you know, take mental notes of that. You know, okay, that he didn't. That scenario didn't didn't work out like I planned. Or you know, make mental notes, remember it, learn from your mistakes, and it did all tie together. That makes sense. I know a few years ago, a few years back, I had my son out during youth season, and uh, I called in this Jake, and, of course, he he didn't care. He was going to pull the trigger on whatever, and he squeezed off a shot, and he missed it. And I, I could still see the Jake out there. He ran off, and he was kind of still skirting around. I said, I think I might be able to get him to come back in. Uh, I said, get ready. And sure enough, <clears throat> that Jake stayed out there, but then a long beard come busting in behind us, and he got another shot at it. Now, he didn't kill either bird, didn't touch a feather on either bird, but he got two shots. So, yeah, like you were saying, just stick with it. Just stick with it, and, you know, eventually it'll come together and, you know, learn from your mistakes. That's the only way you're going to get better. All right. Well, that's good advice. Uh, I'm going to hit you with some of these food plot questions now, if you're cool with that. Yeah, come on. All right. Um Frost seeding, what is it, and what should you be doing? What, what kind of seed should you be putting down when you frost seed? Uh, clover is, you know, frost seeding is a really good way to plant clover. Uh, what it is, you know, clover is such a small, hardy seed that, you know, December, January, February, when that ground's freezing and thawing, you know, if it gets below freezing at night and, you know, when that sun hits it in the morning, that ground will open up and, you know, expand. When, if you go out and do a frost seeding, as that ground freezes and thaws, it'll work that seed into the ground because it's so small, you know, you don't, you don't want to plant clover more than, you know, quarter inch, three eighths, you know, deep. You don't want, you can't just go disc up a field and plant it because if you bury it too far, you know, it plant won't have enough strength to pop out of the ground. So frost seeding is a good way for that to, naturally just work itself down in the ground just a little bit and then as that sun warms up later in the day that break you know helps that that seed work its way down and uh you know come well about right now so when that when them soil temps start getting up there in the 40s and 50s you know that that seed's going to germinate and then you know it's about the easiest way you can plant clover it works really okay works really well is that pretty much the only thing you can plant with uh as far as frost seeding yeah uh yeah, I don't know because you know with radishes and turnips, you know I it's okay. more of a fall crop. Uh, you know wheat, uh, wheat. I don't really you wouldn't really want to do it because it it's not such a hardy seed. If a, if a wheat kernel gets wet and say you, like we've had here in the last couple of days, you know it was eighty uh, two days ago. Well, a day or two prior to that, it was down in the forties and fifties again. You know once that seed germinates, that wheat if it were to turn off cold or freeze again, that tender little brand new shoot that's coming out of that wheat kernel is going to die. So you don't necessarily want to try to do it with that, but with the, the clover seed so hard and a little hardy seed, it, it's going to take a while and uh, it can withstand those colder temps before it germinates. Okay. Um, soil samples, in your opinion, are they necessary? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, because if you don't know what your ground is capable of, you'll never know for like what what types of fertilizer do I need lime or, you know, a soil sample will tell you that. You go out, 
and with a soil probe or just a simple hand shovel and whatever size plot you have, maybe it's a half acre, if it's a, a tenth of an acre, whatever you have, you can take these samples and, you know, it will tell you, hey, I need to put, you know, a thousand pounds of lime down or you're, you're high in potassium or because what we used to do back in, you know, years ago before we, before food plots really were a thing at our farm, uh, my dad would just grab a few bags of triple 13 or whatever. And we'd just go out and throw it out. Well, if your the ground's acidic or, you know, the, the plant can't utilize the nutrients in the ground, you're just, you know, throwing away money. You may not need, you know, say 200 pounds of fertilizer when you can get by with 50 and you won't know that until a soil sample result says, Hey, this is what you need and this is what you don't need. You know, it will save you money okay. in the long run. Um, how do you take a soil sample and how should you know, how often should you take a soil sample? Uh, well, it's pretty easy. You want it, you know, they, they have certain tools. It's a soil probe. It's a, it's about a foot long tube with a little step stool on it to where you can, you can walk through and basically take a little plug out of the ground and you want to go six, anything deeper than six inches, you're, that's about max because that's about where your, you know, that's where your root mass is going to be your own. So uh, the top six inches is where you want to get your, your soil from. Uh, like I said, if you say you have a half acre plot and just go out and take five, six random samples, you don't want to just pick a spot that's really green or one that's really bare. You want to just kind of just throw a hat or take a stick and throw it, you know, just however, wherever it lands, take okay. a sample from it. Because if you if you pick your the greenest best spots, it will throw it'll, it'll give you a like a goofy reading because that maybe that one maybe that side of that food plot's got a little bit better soil or you know the ground makeup's a little different. And if you do all that from that one spot, you know you you need a good average. You know try to average out the best you can with the okay. with your samples. Um, here's a personal question for you. Something I've done in the past, and I don't know how accurate it is, but these little soil sample kits you can buy online or sometimes I think you can get them at seed stores. Are they accurate? Yeah. Uh, I've never used one. Uh, depending on how, what they require. I mean, it, it could probably give you a, a good generic reading, but you know, you can pretty much go to any co-op or, you know, some store like that. And uh, a lot of times those little places will be able to, take your sample and they can send it off to the lab because you know where i work we have guys that come in you know they might take one out of the yard or out of the garden or food plot whatever and we'll we'll send it into the lab and there's certain way you know depending on how much you want to do it they can say just tell me you know what kind of fertilizer i need that's my ph and then if you really want to get into it they can tell you you know micronutrients and you know you can really dial it into whatever you know for optimum optimum growing conditions but you know a good a co-op you can usually take your sample into that and not a you know 10 15 bucks you know whatever and that and that'll give you every piece of information you need depending on how far you okay. go down your and you do that every year uh you know with these the ag the big farmers you know they can do it about every three years but <clears throat> i was talking to my buddy he's an agronomist you know with a food plot you uh 
you know, maybe every other year, or maybe every year, depending on, you know, pressure. Cause like, for example, like with a combine, you know, all that's really doing is just going to go through the field, say you're cutting corn and that combine is going to take the kernels of corn, put it in a hopper and it's going to spit out the rest of the plant, you know, out the tail end. So every, you know, all the nutrients that that corn plant actually absorbed, you know, it, whatever's remaining in the leaf and the stalk, you know, that's going to go back in the ground. So you're going to recycle okay. some of that nutrient, you know, as you work at ground in, but you know, as for like a deer plot, you know, if you've got clover or beans or whatever, that plant is absorbing whatever nutrients it can out of the ground. Well, if that deer eats it and takes it with him, you're not getting it back. You know, they don't, you're not recycling, you know, the leftovers of the plant cause they're, okay. they're eating it, you know, unless they're, uh, self-fertilizing the field for you that's about the only way you're gonna do it but that makes the deer is going to take the plant with them so you're actually going to you know you're going to lose some nutrients to an extent you know that you know i might need to go put some more fertilizer down every year instead of every other year okay however it plays out um this is kind of piggybacking off that can you explain why soil needs lime and what the lime does to the ph yeah, because so if uh, say if you've got acidic soil, you know if you, if your ground is not, you know, conducive really for growing stuff to where a plant cannot basically absorb, you know, to its potential, just because of the you know certain nutrients are locked up in the ground. So if you've got acidic soil, you may not be able to, you know, release a certain nutrient, you know, potassium or something that a plant might need because it's locked up. But if you can go ahead and put some lime in. And that's where a soil sample comes in where if you've got acidic soil, you know, I took my sample and it was, you know, I'm in rock country and I was a, like a five, six or so, five, seven. So I was, okay. I was what's about, what, where do you want it about? What's about perfect? Uh, seven is neutral. So absolute zero is acidic and then 14 is uh, alkaline. So you're, seven is in the middle that's your that's your optimal okay. that's basically neutral so a six a six five to a six eight you know that's a good sweet spot but seven is perfect to an extent but it's very tough to get to that point so you know a six a mid six six and a half is is about where you want because that's going to be able to let the plant absorb what it to its potential what it's going to do you know for it's going to absorb whatever it can out of the soil and for its okay. max potential so that's what so when lime, you know, if uh, when you put lime in, it's going to help neutralize it to an extent where that ground is going to be able to release some of that stuff to where a plant can absorb it. And then on the other side, if you've got, say, you know, an eight or a nine where you're, you're more alkaline, where you're, uh, you've got too much lime, you can put elemental sulfur in, which will help bring it more it'll help break it down to where you know make it a little bit more acidic so depending on how your soil sample says you know it might be okay you're at a you're at a five five on your soil we recommend you put you know three thousand pounds of lime down to the acre and then that's going to because you can say okay i want to i want to try to hit six and a half and this is where i want and that they give you recommendations on you know three thousand pounds of lime or two thousand pounds of if you don't have a soil sample and you decide that, Hey, I want to, I want to just go spend, 
X amount of dollars and put 3,000 pounds of line down when you might have only needed a thousand, you know, you just kind of threw some money out the window. So a soil sample is basically a roadmap for what you need. And it's a, it's a, it will save money in the long run, like I said, because you just don't know. But with a soil sample, you know, it tells you what you need to do and, you know, it gets okay. you right there. Um, here's one for you. And I know with your background, you could really get deep into this, but kind of give me a, overview of um like herbicides and, and what's what does what and do you need herbicides on all food plots and kind of your thinking there uh it it's really kind of what you want to achieve uh i like to spray mine because i don't want competition you know if i'm trying to grow some some beans or you know whatever and i've got a bunch of grass growing in there those every one of those pieces of grass or taking whatever moisture away that could be going to my beans or you know whatever so it's a kind of a however you want to look at it, if it doesn't really bother you and it, you know you don't maybe not have enough to where you want to go out and spend some money on some chemical and you just if you don't have the means for it and say hey i just got it planted let it go it, it's what you want to achieve i i like to have it where i want the best growing conditions that i possibly can you know economically for i i want the plant what i'm trying to grow for my deer is what i want to grow not you know let the let weeds and everything else try to take over i want to try to keep as much competition down for the my okay. food plot that i'm trying to grow like but you know with like i put in a clover plot uh i had a we had the conservation come in I guess three years, four years ago now, we had a we did a cost share, and we had him put in. Uh, we did three, three half acre plots and a water hole. Well, it's kind of weird how our farm lays out because you can be on one ridge, and the soil's fairly rocky, and then I can move over two hundred yards to the next one, and I've got almost zero rocks. Well, one of these newer plots that I had, the, the more I worked the ground, you know, the first year with the does were come in and, you know, we had some roots and uh, we did the best we could pick out sticks, whatever left, whatever roots were left. We just, you know, mm-hmm. did our best to clean it up. Well, I took a disc through it, tried to work it up best I could, you know, just more or less to help level the ground out because, you know, where the tractor dug out of a tree or whatnot, it was a little bit of a dip. So I was trying to bring it in, bring a disc through it and, it was really good dirt for the first year. Well, it started getting some rain on it and, you know, mm-hmm. the rocks started popping through. Well, it's like, Oh, well, every, our, our ground out there, it's kind of bass backwards from how normal farming operations work to where I have to have a two inch rain to go out and work that ground because it's so hard with, you know, some of it's got some rocky soil. Some of it's not. well, after a good two inch rain that ground's soft enough where you know i have a, a little five foot disc i pull behind a, a little tractor that i can really cut the ground and really turn it and it works up well well the more i started working this ground i was pulling up rocks and i just well came to the conclusion i want to do clover just where i all i had to do was mow it it's going to save me hours you know every year on trying to get this ground worked up and so i went ahead and put clover in and now all I have to do is mow it. I ain't got to try to worry about a rain. And, you know, timeline-wise, if, if 
it's a if it's nice, you know, weather wise, I'm working. But if it's raining, I don't necessarily have to be at work because you know farmers ain't what you know working the fields. Then you know I have a little time where I maybe I can go do something, and take a day off or whatever. But as I got the clover in the ground, I went ahead and you know get some grass and I can go ahead and spray you know grass killer on it. And it's you know something like that to where I want clover growing and not a bunch of weeds and grass, then I can go in and put, you know, spray with some herbicide on that. But it's really kind of what you, what you plan for personal preference, really. I like it. I like a clean plot, but you know, no, not everybody has the means to do okay. that or may not have the time to do it. All right. Um, here's one for you. Um, if you're putting in your first plot, where do you start and what should, steps should you take uh, to get to the point of planning? Uh, I like ridge tops. Uh, a lot of our plots uh, are on ridge tops just for, you know, kind of prevailing winds. You know, if you're down in the bottom, you get swirling winds and it's, you know, pretty tough to hunt. But if you can get on a, a higher ridge or whatever, and it, you, you know, a lot of our, we have a lot of westerly winds. It's just, it, I, a lot of my stand locations are set up for a west wind. We hardly have any easterlies. So all my, you know, a lot of my stands are set up on the eastern edge of these plots where, you know, a west wind's in my face and uh, the wind's good. So you'll get more consistent, you'll get more consistent winds higher up. And you know, okay, I, I typically that's a like good ridges, point. I never thought know, really, but I guess I'm guessing on yeah. ridge tops too, you're probably going to get better sun, right? Yeah, you you get the. Uh, depending on what size plot you have, you know, if you, a small little hidey hole plot that, you know, 30 yards wide by 20 yards long, you know, it's just depending on what, what size plot you have, you, you'll get a little bit better sun on top, you know, but if you have a, you know, big tree canopy, it's just didn't really matter where you're at, but uh, yeah, you'll get, you'll get a lot better. You'll get more consistent winds and then you'll, you, yeah, you'll get better sunlight, but at the same time, sometimes it'll okay. ridge tops a little well, rocky. This kind of but, piggybacks off you know. that. Uh, what's something good to plant in a small plot in the timber? I do. Uh, I like clover and wheat because, you know, for a growing, you know, like I say, you want to try to put in a bean plot, you know, it's not really economical for, you know, a, a, a small plot that's, 30 yards by 30 yards you know you're gonna those deer will mow them down so fast that you're just wasting time in my opinion but something with uh you know wheat inexpensive you pretty much throw it on the ground it's going to germinate clover pretty much same thing you know you don't it doesn't take a whole lot of work but once you get you you get in there throw it on the ground it's going to come up and you know sometimes those pots are too small where maybe if you don't have equipment you know can't get a tracker in there if you got a four-wheeler and it, you're driving in and out around trees and zigzagging back and forth you know it's just kind of a, you know something easy you don't have to mess with it and then you know get get some wheat growing get some clover and then you can always come in with turnips and radishes and broadcasting over the top of that for in the fall you want to put as much tonnage out you know as that turnip tops growing put on those big leafy tops and uh you know the more food you can provide on that little bitty plot is okay that's what you want to well try let me ask you this again some of these questions are piggybacking right into the other one 
how big should a food plot be? Can it be too big or too small? Uh, yeah, yes and no, really. Uh, you know, minimum is half acres, you know, about a minimum like what to read about because, you know, I went and pulled carts today, you know, and I had a, a little half acre clover patch and I think there was 11 deer in it and they've had it mowed down to the ground for months now and it gets a lot of pressure and you, you know, there's really nothing you can do about it because they're in there every day munching it down and, you know, something that's going to keep growing a little hardy plant like clover, you know, it's providing, there's a lot of, there's a lot of little clover plants out there, but if you try to do, you know, a bag of beans and, you know, they'll have it ate off in the first okay. night once they start coming up. But, but if you get a bit, you know, you're hunting an ag field and you're hunting over a, a 200 acre cut cornfield and you're watching deer come out from, you know, the far end, you know, there's really nothing, you know, it is too big because you can't really, you can't shoot that far, you know, however, you know, whatever. So it's kind of hard to set up on something unless you know if you can pattern them and see which way they're coming in and out of. But, you know, our biggest field is, I think I said, what, six acres. And it's 200 yards pretty much for the whole way. But, like, the furthest shot I can make is 300. But I've got stands set up kind of just based off wind directions, really, because it never fails. You you hunt one stand and then – deer or whatever they come out on the other end of the field and you go like oh, i'll hunt that tomorrow and then you go hunt every that time they come out the other end of the field so <laughs> it's just kind of yeah, oh yeah so I, i've got stands pretty well set up you know both sides of it a couple different sides where if it is a south wind i can hunt one side if it's north wind i can hunt the other and just uh you know it's not big enough to where I'm not watching deer from half a mile away. I'm watching them from 200 yards and they, they can always feed their way towards me. But, you know, a lot of guys that may not have big parcels of ground or whatever, you know, if you, if you have a small hidey hole plot and that's all you can make, I mean, it's just, you know, put what you can try to put as much food as you can and keep something growing all year. Cause you know, I, t- I try to keep something growing at all times, you know, just to help, you know, feed the deer year round really. Cause I was telling my buddies, like, I'm going to do everything I can to suck all the deer off of you. And I'll put all, you know, put as much deer as I can and there keep them on my side. Uh, yeah. Does a food plot need to be tilled or disc or can you put this plant on unbroken ground? And once again, it just comes down to, you know, what type of equipment you have. You know, I'm pretty fortunate. I got a tractor and disc, you know, sitting at the cabin and, you know, I can go out and work up a field, but I wish I had a no-till drill because, you know, the more you disturb that soil and, you know, you bring up rocks and, you know, it's if you can no-till a plot where you're not really disturbing the ground, you help your microbes out and everything that's in the soil that's helping break down your other organic matter, you know, but when you till it up, disc it up, whatever, you know, it it's good and bad. I mean, it I, I personally have to disc, so it don't bother me none, but, you know, it's just whatever you whatever you have at your disposal. I mean, some guys that may just have a four-wheeler and a little pull-behind heart or something that can just barely scratch the ground, you know, just 
trial and error, find out what works. Well, you was kind of saying earlier, if you can, like something like with weed, if you can just get to an exposed dirt, it'll usually take off, won't it? Yeah. I mean, if it, you know, out here, like I said, you know, I, I'm using our farm as an example, because that's pretty much where I hunt. And I've had so much trial and error stuff to where I've tried to throw weed out on ground that, you know, it's hard packed, you know, I had a pretty good rain on and it's sitting up like concrete. Well, you know, sometimes it'll grow, sometimes it won't. Well, if I, you know, have a disc and I can go out there and try to get that ground scratched up a little bit, plant it, you know, that's better. But, you know, if, like I said, if, you, if a guy, all he has is a, a four wheeler, even a hand rake, you know, scratch that ground up best you can and try to get some seed soil contact and, you know, it's better than nothing, but try to, you know, scratching the ground, even if it is with a rake, you know, just if that's what you got, just get with it and, you know, a little sweat equity because anytime you go out there and bust your butt and do all the work and, you, you know, you're successful come fall and you might kill your biggest buck or first deer and, you know, you can always look back and say, hey, I did that, you know, I I was out here in July sweating and cutting trees and pulling weeds and doing this. And, you know, I made that. There you go. You I, know, yeah. Here's my. Okay. So in the Midwest, I mean, just kind of a generic question, but when's the best time, time to start planting in the spring? Yeah. From a food plot standpoint, you know, uh, <clears throat> May, May is probably a good time, you know, late May for, uh, for beans, you know, anything earlier than that, you know, if you're run, you try to plant in April, it's a little too early because you, you know, you're still down, especially around here, you can always run into that, that late frost and, you know, how I many snowed, I think it snowed twice last year in April. So, uh, yeah, may get some beans in the ground, you know, they'll give them a little bit longer to, you know, I've never had really good success with them because they deer eat them off so fast, but, uh, may, may, June for beans. And then, uh, I like to plant my corn, try to get it in, you know, around that time, May, June, because I don't want it, you know, from a farming standpoint, I want to be in now that field. I want to harvest, you know, September. Well, from a hunting standpoint, I really, you know, bow season opens up here in Missouri September 15th. Well, I don't want that corn being ready to eat, you know, once it's all ready to go and I don't want it done by September. I, I kind of wanted to start filling out and, maturing out you know say around october so you know getting that june i've planted corn july 4th one year because that was the first time i actually had a chance to go over and do it and caught some timely rains and uh it stayed warm stayed warm up until well really middle october and uh it was one of the better crops i ever had yeah i can see that but i guess the only especially around here not you know maybe the farther north but if you typically about 4th of July here, it's so hot and dry that you yeah. don't get anything to go, but like yeah. you said, timely rains. If you can catch a good timely rain, especially around pollinating, you know, in fact, if you get it planted in, you know, late May and you start getting into that dead July, August, you know, where there's hardly no rain, that's about time that corn's going to start pollinating. And if it's too dry, you know, it won't pollinate right, but you, you catch a few good rains in there where, you know, it's not so bone dry. Uh, you know, you, you can, you can make it work. Just, 
you gotta get lucky every once in a while. It's like sure, else. like 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 farmers do. Just rely on you. You're you're relying yeah. on Mother Nature. Right? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, what are some things that you would plant in the fall, and when do you typically start planting your fall plots? I know going off what you and I talked about last year, I was relying on you a lot. You're you like I'd probably wait a week and then go if you see rain in the forecast. Yeah. Give me some information on that. I like to get my stuff. Uh, you know, I'll plant beans, you know, like I said, May or so. Uh, I'll let them grow best that they can because, you know, whatever the deer don't eat. And then I'll come in, you know, say late August or so. I'll just throw some weed out. And, you know, I'm not growing it for like a crop or anything. I just want something that, you know, come – bow season if i got you know if i can get some wheat planted two or three weeks before bow season uh i try to do them you know little strips or something right in front of the blind or my stand or whatever that you know good tender growth you know highly attractive to them so i try to get some you know get some wheat planted you know right around that time uh your turnips and stuff you know if you can the longer you can get them in there before, uh, you know, hard frost, uh, like I said, you know, based off the weather, really, if it's super hot and dry and you, you know, if you plant it and it, it's pretty dusty, you know, that ground, all it's going to do is just that seed's going to sit in there until it, until it gets a rain. So I've tried to do it in August before I've tried to do it in September and it's just, they don't get real tall, but I, you know, if you plant it too early and it just, if it does get a good, you know, so you get a couple of days of rain that germinates and then it turns off a drought for the next month and a half, that plant's going to die anyway. So it's just kind of a, a luck of the draw, you know, turnips and stuff, you know, August is a good time to do that. And that gives them enough time where they can get, you know, maybe six, eight foot tall, you know, however long, whenever it does get, you know, for late season, just depends. Okay. Cause uh, we've gotten, you know, we lost our mind one year. We took a, a thousand gallon water tank out there and tried to, we were sucking water out of the pond and taking it up and trying to water some of these hidey hole food plots. And we put a thousand gallon water down and it, it would suck up. And before we get the hoses rolled up, it'd be just almost dry again. I'm like, well, I just wasted our time. I think dish. I remember that a couple, couple years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. It, real, real dry, real dry during the. It, the Almost I remember that. Didn't rain for like two months, and we're like, "Oh man, this is bad." Because everything we had was just dirt. And yeah, I got it ground just enough to where that seed kind of halfway germinated. Then it just dried up and died. So it was just kind of, well, we tried. <laughs> Again, relying on Mother Nature. Yeah, it was, that was a bad one. Um, these kind of all tie together, but I'll, I'll kind of hit you with all three of these. Something that you would plant that you could hunt over early season. I'm guessing like you were talking beans. Yeah. Um, and then what would you hit with like uh, something that would hit about the time that the rut was hitting, like about, you know, early November. And then what would you like to have rolling when it turns off cold during late season? I mean, in a, if a guy can get beans, I mean, that's your, that's your way to go. But, you know, I've, I've like I said, I've never had any, you know, really good success with it because, the deer eat them off so fast and you, you can't necessarily go try to plant them in a, a small hidey hole plot. Cause you just don't have, you just don't have enough plants there. 
but you know say if a guy had a 100 acre field where there's no way a deer's going to be able to eat off of it that's what you know once it turns cold and these deer are coming off that rut you know they're they're drained out they're looking for replenishment you know the beans are high in protein which i plant corn i had you know maybe a two and a half acre patch of corn that for our area you know i don't know of any landowners around me that has you know corn or food plots that nature so i i pull a lot of deer in just for you know trying to keep as much food as possible on my farm and um you know during the rut you know historically we don't see a lot you know we don't see a lot of buck activity in that field because you know they're you'll never beat an acorn that is the number one white oak is the number one deer food but you know it seems like those when those bucks get in there with them does that they'll follow them but if you got a lot of does feeding your field and that's just kind of how your hunting setup is then stick with it but you know me personally i've never had a whole lot of success with trying to hunt the rut over you know standing corn or you know whatever beans because early season when those beans are green you know protein wise that i try to keep them out for the summer when you know you know bucks are putting on antlers and you know got the fawns coming in you know trying to keep the does healthy and you know helping bucks you know get as big antlers as they possibly can grow but at the same time once they eat them all off i'll just come back with you know wheat and just something green but uh for a rut you know corn me personally that's what i've had success with you know, for late season you know we don't typically get a whole lot of snow but uh you know if, if we were to have a couple four or five inches of snow and that standing corn it's above it above the snow they don't have to dig for it and it's a it's a good food source for them but you know beans are beans are always a good one you know they're high in protein and then they will just flock to it when it gets cold but you know i have corn two acres of corn in one field and right beside it i have two or three acres of wheat because you know mother nature down here sometimes it's 65 degrees in november and the next day it's 35 you know yeah. deer will they'll want their carbs for their corn you know when it's when it gets cold helps you know keeps that metabolism up body heat but you know on the warmer days they're going to go to green so i have both of them in the same field and you know, I can I can sit there and depend on what type of weather I have. But, you know, I've got both food sources in the same spot. Do you uh, do you plant any brassicas at all? Oh yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, some of them like my hidey hole plots. You know that you know do get a lot of pressure. I will broadcast. Uh, I'll broadcast uh, clover, turnips, and uh, do cereal rye. But you know radishes and turnips. You know, if you can get them, you get good growing conditions, and they start putting off that big, fat, leafy top. I mean, that's a lot of a lot of tonnage. So you can feed a you can feed a lot of deer in a in a small area just for that fact. So, you know, in a hidey hole plot, you know, wheat something that's inexpensive, it's going to put off some you know a lot a tonnage is kind of what you're looking for. Is you know, it's a uh, it's always a good one for a smaller plot. I know you I've had a lot of. I've had a lot of success and I've talked to you about it before, but, uh, I go with, um, I go with radishes and oats Mm -hmm. and just broadcast them together. And, uh, they typically 
hit those oats first. And then as it starts to cool down, they come back and they gnaw those radishes down and then pull the bulbs up. And yeah, I seen it where they've just, I mean, looks like there's been hogs in there, but to where it's oh, just yeah. beat down to dirt. Yep. Cause then, cause as, uh, as that tops growing on them turnips, you know, they're pretty bitter, but, uh, once that first frost hits, you know, those starches will convert to sugars in the, in the plant. So they'll get, if you, if you can plant both of them together, you know, they'll eat the, the small tender shoots of your wheat or your oats or whatever you got planted. And they'll just kind of leave those brassicas alone, let them get bigger because they're bitter and they, you know, it's not very palatable. Well, once it turns cold and those starches convert, then you'll see them just, like you said, come back in and just mow down. And I, like I've had them do the same thing, just pawing out the bulbs and, you know, it just it's amazing how what they'll do for a little bit of a turnip. Yeah. And and also um, if you got ground that's if you got ground that's maybe a little bit compacted, you know, turnips are good for uh you know soil compaction because as they start growing they displace that dirt. And yeah, okay. If they, if they don't eat it and then that turn that that bulb turns around and rots, it leaves a void and you know putting your nutrients back in the ground, you know, it's basically turning itself into those, you know, some fertilizer, but then you know, as that tuber goes down and breaks up and, you know, once it rots, it leaves a void and, you know, helps aerate the soil and, you know, it, it won't be as hard compact. You know, it's that's what they're designed to do for, like, cover crop stuff. Okay. You know, when you get tractors that drive over and up and down the field all the time and, you know, that soil gets compacted, you know, a lot of guys, when they put that cover crop, it helps, that, helps break that soil down because, you know, they don't harvest the cover crop. And as that stuff starts to rot, it basically – you know, it's almost like it's aerating the field a little bit. Um, makes sense. What, uh, I know there's no perfect answer to this, but what, what, if you had a small plot, what would you put in it? What's best for a small plot? Uh, like with mine, you know, I did clover cause just for the fact that I was getting a lot of rocks and it, it's a perennial. So I can plant it once and, you know, I might get a two or three years out of it, out of one planting. But then, you know, brassicas are good because, you, like I said, tonnage. You know, if you, if you don't have a whole lot of area, you want to try to provide as much food as possible, you know. And, uh, you know, when that turnips, if it, you got good growing conditions and, you know, you can put that big old leafy mass on top, you know, you, you can feed a lot of deer and it don't take a whole lot to, you know, one little bitty turnip seed can turn into one big plant. So, and there's a bunch of turnips in a pound. That's true. Um, what? Hold on a second here. Um, you kind of hit on this, but if you can, kind of over again. Can it? Can a plot get too much activity? Absolutely. Uh, if you know, trying to manage deer herd, you know, you, I've seen guys where you can take like a utilization utilization cage where take you some chicken wire and make a, a three-foot circle out of it and sit it out in the middle of the field and, you know, where a deer can't munch on it. And you go out there and everything inside the cage is a foot tall and everything outside of the cage is gnawed down to the ground. You know that, hey, they've been in here pretty tough. It's just not – it's not my food plots growing. They're just eating it off so bad. Mm -hmm. But, uh, <clears throat> like I said, I had, you know, nine or ten deer in that, in that picture this morning. And that clover plot, it's been – it's been gnawed to the ground like 
for months now. And, you know, here, as it starts coming out of dormancy, you know, everything's going to start warming up here in the next month or so. And, you know, I just got it fertilized. And as that clover starts to get growing, you know, hopefully in, you know, perfect world, it's going to start getting growing fast, faster than what the deer can eat at all fat. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, if you got too many deer in the area, I mean, they, they'll wipe out a food plot pretty quick. Okay. Well, you so, just kind of hit on this one too, but I, I, when, when is the, when would be the best time to fertilize? Uh, is it late spring or late winter? When, 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 when do you typically fertilize? Uh, I like to do it in the spring, uh, spring and fall really. Uh, cause with, depending on what you're doing, um, like potash, which is, uh, from the fertilizer, it's a double O 60, zero, zero 60. Um, that's what, you know, for your, your broadleafs, your clovers, your beans, your, you know, radishes, whatever. Uh, I like to do it in the spring because what it's doing now is, you know, the clover is starting to come out of dormancy. It's waking up. Uh, I'll try to go if it works out, I'll try to do it, you know, a few days before rain or, you know, whatever, but springtime's good. And then, you know, you don't want to do it necessarily in the summer because if it's the dead heat of the summer, and you go out there and you say you got some wheat plant and you're going to put some urea down or nitrogen. Well, that plant gets that little boost of nitrogen. It's sitting there trying to do it all. You know, it's got a, it's like Popeye eating spinach. You know, he's, it's that plant's ready to start growing. Well, if it's too dry and it's not get, absorbing enough water, you know, it, it can almost really hurt the plant because it's not, it's trying to do more than what it's the ground's able to produce. Is that where they, so, I've, I've heard this before. Is that where they talk about it might burn it up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can burn it up just if you put too much on it. And, you know, uh, like I said, if that plant's trying to grow and it's too dry, you know, you can really actually hurt the plant because, you know, it it's trying to grow, but it can't. Okay. Um, Anytime for rain, and you know, spring's always a good time because everything's going to be, you know, greening up and then, you know, that's when that plant's going to really start trying to do its thing and start growing. So spring's always good. And then, you know, fall when it starts to get a little bit cooler temps, you know, you might be able to get, you know, if you got some wheat for a, you know, winter wheat food plot, give it a little nitrogen and it'll really, you know, help that plant grow to where, like I said, putting out tonnage, you know, get that plant growing to where if deer's nipping it down, it's going to keep, it's, it's got enough stuff on it to where it's going to want to keep growing. Okay. And, you know, <clears throat> okay um some of my questions you've already kind of gone over but um what what do you typically put in your food plots i know you said corn and beans and wheat uh what else do you generally put down uh i do uh got some corn beans turnips radishes i did some cow peas this year just to try them out how'd those then, go uh, by the way uh actually surprisingly well for it got hot late and uh i got them in the ground and they Actually, they were in the ground for about a week and a half, and then I finally got some rain on it, and they germed. They came up, and they're pretty drought tolerant. Mm-hmm. So the rest, of my, the rest of my plot actually kind of burnt up, and they they were actually doing really well. I shot a, I shot a doe opening day of bow season over in in the cowpea plot, but what they do, which is kind of different from beans, is once they start getting nipped at, you know, when when a plant 
starts to grow and it kicks off that first branch. That's the, the trifoliate. It's the first three leaf branch, basically. Uh, if a deer nips it down below that, below that, onto that stem, that plant's dead. Well, as a bean, we'll only try to produce, you know, maybe one shoot trying to, you know, heal itself off and keep growing. Cow peas will throw off multiple. So in a perfect world, if you can get where these deer are nipping down and, you know, they start throwing off three or four more new growth, new stems out, you know, theoretically it might get to the point where they can't eat it all. So, so they could be a, I guess I'm, and I'm, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions here, but it sounds like they, they could, they'd be more tolerant to yeah. browsing. Browsing tolerant is kind of what I could, you know, I, I read up on a little bit and then, you know, I looked at them and they hit them pretty hard, but then they were, they were coming back pretty good. And, uh, I just planted a small area, uh, just kind of like a trial run, but started thinking about, it. I might just, uh, if I, when I plant my beans this year, I might throw a throw a bag or two in with the mix, and you know, kind of see how they do on a, a little bit bigger area. Because I was impressed with them; they were they were green, and everything else was burnt up and dying, looking real sick. But they were just as pretty green as you can get. I do. I was talking about last year. I had put some uh, put some radishes in, some oats, and in the very corner, I had just I had a friend of mine that had given me. Um, some cow peas so i mm-hmm. put those down and they popped up and i didn't even know what they looked like uh you know yeah. i didn't know them from adam but they, they kind of pop up they almost look like a clover only bigger as they come up out yeah, of the ground they're, they're goofy looking leaf when they're real little yeah but i do know that the deer mowed those down first they were the first things to go yeah it's it's i mean it's similar I mean, it's kind of a it's not exact but you know it's same thing as a bean you know it's a, it's tender when they're when they're coming up and new and you know, they're, it's a highly palatable food for, you know, I, I was impressed with them. That was the first time I ever tried it. And like I said, I might, uh, I might do it again, maybe buy a few extra bags just to plant them and see what they actually are capable of. But, you know, with, with my clover plots, you know, like I have, oh, I think three or four acres of clover that, you know, a half acre plot here, a half acre plot over here and a two acre seat. Cause I don't, it's the ground where I got the clover so rocky that I, I can't work it. I don't want to work it anymore because I'm losing whatever soil that I've built up through, you know, organic matter from, you know, plants, you know, mowing it down and, you know, whatever. But, you know, I planted uh, equal parts red and ladino clover, like crimson clover and then ladino. Because mm-hmm. it, it comes off at different times, you know, the, the deer, you know, they prefer ladino the white clover more but as that red it's get it's stemmy and so you got a lot of lignin in that stem and you know it'll put off a bigger head that the turkeys will utilize turkeys will eat both of them you know they'll, they'll flower the white flower off the ladino and then they'll eat the, the red flower but you know it, they come off a little bit different times so it, it one's producing when the other one's not so it's kind of a double you know a double shot there <clears throat> have you ever tried while i'm thinking about it i can't even remember the exact name is it truffle you ever tried that? Chufa? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I planted it one year, and it was it was drought, and I like I, said, I never knew what it was, and uh, I don't think it came up because it, it got so hot and dry, but I never I never went back to it. You know, they say it's good for turkeys, but I've I've never I never planted it. Okay, well, I was just curious. I I've, I've heard of it, but never known anybody that had planted yeah. it. Um. Yeah. 
kind of piggybacking off that, um, and you'll know this better than anybody because I, I get last year I got all my seed from you. But is there a difference in the big name seed? Like you know, well I won't say any companies, but uh, yeah. you know, or just like the generic seed you can get at the local feed store. Yeah, I mean, there's to an extent, uh, you know, some of this corn, you know, by, like, like Roundup Ready beans versus Liberty beans. Uh, you can, what they call conventional, is you know, it's kind of like the stuff that our grandparents used to plant. You know, there, there was no Roundup Ready stuff back in the day, so you can they'll plant they'll grow just like anything else, but. At the same time, you you won't be able to go in there and spray them because if you try to come in with some Roundup or you know glyphosate, whatever, you know you try to spray it over a conventional bean, you'll just kill it. So if you can, you know, some of this stuff now, you know, it's got all the the seed treatment on it. You know, it's going to help that plant get down there, and it's going to give it a little boost to where it, you know, going to help it come out of the ground quicker, and you know, it's going to give it a, a good head start. Okay. It, you you can plant it, but you'll you would probably have better luck with something that's going to have a seed seed coat on it, seed treatment. Okay. And whether whether it's a brand X versus brand Z, you know, it's just kind of you know Roundup versus Liberty or however whatever you plant. But I mean, it'll grow. You'll just probably have better luck with something that's got a seed coat on it. Seed okay. treatment. What about? Like if, you know, I don't know what companies make it. Like I said, I won't throw out any companies, but you see yeah. these companies that have like their own version of, uh, you know, clover or whatever. Is it any different yeah. than the clover I can just go to the seed store buy? Uh, to an extent, yeah, because some of these, you know, it's all patents, you know, okay. like somebody might be able to buy like a certain type of genetic from company A and breed it with another genetic from company B. And then they might be able to have like plant X that's some hybrid between two other companies, you know, it's all relative to an extent, but you know, clovers, clovers means some of these companies that, you know, breed plants for, you know, you know, breeding hybrids for deer food plots. I mean, it's higher seed, you know, it's higher price, but, you know, that's what it's designed to do. Okay. And, you know, somebody might not be able to go out and pay $250, $300 for a bag of corn whenever, hey, I know a buddy lives down the road. He's got some in a grain bin that's, you know, I can go ahead and try to plant that. You know, you'll have it it'll come up, but maybe not as good. So it's just kind of a risk that, you know, uh, I've seen, I've, I've bought bird food before. And it was black oil sunflower seeds and planted it and they came up oh really so, yeah <laughs> well that's that's something i was always curious about if there was a big difference you know i i figured there had to be just in the in the in the price yeah. um but typically do you plant the uh what do you plant do you do you get the the big name or do you just get what you get from the well you get yours <laughs> i take yeah, it back <laughs> I, well i uh I have a company that I can order my stuff out of that, you know, we, uh, I might have a bag left over from like a seed rep from that might be whatever, but I try to plant, you know, I try to stick with what I know it works. You know, if I have an extra bag of coated soybeans, you know, maybe they're, 
buy a bag of Roundup Ready soybeans. I'll, I'll plant with it. But, you know, beans are pretty easy. You know, you, you get them wet long enough on concrete, they'll grow. You know, but uh, you, it's just pretty much it's kind of like, you know, what's economical for somebody. You know, they may not be able to go out and, you know, but plant one bag that might cost them 50 bucks and, you know, but it's all relative to an extent, but yeah, it's just, if you can, if you can get something with a seed treatment, like I said, you know, it's probably gonna be your better route, but at the same time, it might cost you more than what just some generic bag of, you know, corn, like wheat, you can buy a a high dollar hybrid wheat, or you can go to a local co-op, buy a a bag of feed wheat for five, six bucks. And it's going to, it's all going to grow. You know, it's just, you know, looking at it from a crop standpoint, it's just, you're feeding deer. Yeah. You know, you're not trying to make 60 bushel wheat. Yeah. That's kind of been always my theory. I'm, I'm not harvesting this. I just want to feed something to keep it coming yeah. in. As long as it, as long as it comes up, turns green and, you know, gets a deer within bow gun range, whatever it's, you know, that's all that matters. All right. Well, I've kept you on here a long time, but I appreciate it, man. Um, if you don't mind later on this summer, I might hit you up again and then I'm, definitely gonna hit you up see what kind of activity you're seeing in the fall if you're if you're cool with that oh yeah uh, oh absolutely yeah I, would, I need to come up and hang out with you and brian anyways oh yeah we were well we're gonna do another podcast we're gonna do it live we're right in the middle of the <clears throat> coronavirus so we're doing everything oh. brian won't even let me near his house right now but <laughs> yeah. so anyway i really appreciate it, jake and uh yeah man. During turkey season and i'll talk to you for too long all right bud Yeah, good luck. Send me some pictures, buddy. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right, man. Thank you. Bye. Hey, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks to Jake for helping me out. Hope you get some good information on both turkey and food plotting. He's got some great knowledge. Everybody stay strong, stay healthy. We'll talk to you soon. for listening to the Bustin' Beaks and Chasin' Tales podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Bustin' Beaks and Chasin' Tales.